They're sort of chuckling among themselves at what a gigantic giveaway this will be, with their clients sitting there in the room, slapping each other on the back. Just a quick announcement here at the top that we are launching a big campaign today that you may want to be a part of. So please stick around all the way to the end of today's episode to get all the details. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, Off Kilter, Decode DC, Intercepted, The Green News Report, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and The Bernie Sanders Show. House Speaker Paul Ryan, Republican of Wisconsin, told reporters on Thursday that, quote, the entire purpose of this tax bill is to cut middle class taxes, close quote, the entire purpose. I wonder if you can shed any light on this. Well, one, it's, it's plainly the, the real purpose is a massive upward transfer of wealth that will mainly benefit the, the corporations and wealthy individuals who will who do bankroll the GOP. I mean, they, and you can look at any study that's out there from nonpartisan groups, tax policy center, I expect we'll see the CBO. Um, they all are, are unanimous in the fact that this is mainly benefits the very wealthy and Republicans have, have been frankly honest about this. in the, in the past few days, there was um, a quote this week from Chris Collins, who a Republican in the house from Western New York, he's the first guy to back Trump. And he said, quite frankly, that his donors have told him, if, if you don't pass this, don't bother calling me again. Wow. So he, he, he kind of uh, gave up the game there that it's not, you know, he's not hearing from the farmers in, in New York's 23rd district or whatever it is. Hey, I, I really need you to pass this bill. He, he's hearing from the people who bankroll his campaigns and the campaigns of other Republicans that, that this needs to get done. Okay, we now have the Donald Trump Republican tax plan in its final form for analysis, and it is called the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. Trump wanted to call it the uh, Cut, Cut, Cut Act 2017, something like that. If I were to try, and I'm going to, to sum up the plan in one phrase, it would be extremist ideological deficit exploding swamp filling disaster wrapped in populist good for the average family dude language, right? That is the one sentence, and it's a very long sentence but it is the one sentence description I would assign. We're gonna get into the details of the plan, but one of the starkest and most depraved signals about this plan is that Donald Trump tells us it's it's, uh, uh, not good for him, but it actually is really, really good for him. In fact, it's mostly good for the very rich, and that includes people making $450,000 per year being considered low and middle income by the plan and people who will be helped by the plan. The one page document that Republicans released brags about how it will lower individual tax rates for low and middle income Americans to zero, 12, 25 and 35 percent. You can earn under this plan. Four hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year and be in the 35 percent tax rate that apparently if you're a Republican counts as being a low or middle income American on what planet? is $450,000 middle class. The facts are that the median household income in the US is about $59,000. Now that's household, not individual, right? 
and there are no formal definitions of the middle class in the U.S., but the Tax Policy Center says that the middle quintile starts at $48,000 a year, okay? So we have a, a sort of double bamboozling that's taking place here. Part one is the plan isn't good for the actual middle class, but part two is that Trump and Republicans are bamboozling you about the reality that even when they are serious about helping the middle class, they aren't talking about you. They're talking about included under that umbrella of the middle class, people that earn up to $450,000 a year. Now let's discuss the specifics of the plan. The biggest place to start is what are the tax brackets? Well, the number of tax brackets will be reduced from seven to four. Uh, if your household makes, for example, $80,000, your rate will decrease from 25% to 12% under this plan. That would save you about $10,000 a year. Now, if you earn $900,000, your rate would decrease from 39.6% to 35%, a nice tidy savings of just over $40,000. So very quickly, when you look at these tax brackets, you realize that yes, many people will see a reduction in tax rates, We'll see later how deduction changes impact them. But for most people, the dollar decrease in taxes due, it's going to be very, very small. But the people who will save the most are those who will earn, who already earn several hundred thousand dollars a year or just over a million dollars per year. But as I said, the tax brackets alone don't tell us everything we need to know. What about deductions? Well, the standard deduction is going to be doubled, okay? Deductions decrease your taxable income. So if you opt to take the standard deduction that's offered, no matter how much you actually spent in deductible expenses, you can choose to take a standard deduction. And we have an image that outlines this as well. Uh, you reduce your taxable income. Who is more likely to itemize deductions? Well, overwhelmingly, people who make a lot of money. 92% of people earning over $500,000 a year itemize. 81% of people earning between one and $500,000 a year itemize. So overall, the people who benefit most are the people who itemize their deductions, which are the very rich. On paper, you say, hey, we're gonna double the standard deduction and that's gonna really help the little guy, the average person, and it may, but that is being countered with some other changes, including the removal of a $4,000 per household member exemption. So this is deliberately complex and the right is selling this as this is going to make your taxes so simple that you're gonna be able to fill them out on a postcard and send it in. That's not true, but for me, more interesting than what the size of the piece of paper is that you can fill out your taxes on, I'm more concerned by, is this a fair tax plan? And I don't mean fair tax as the proper noun that some on the right have created. I just mean, is it fair and equitable and just? Is this going to disproportionately help the very rich, the very poor, the middle class? Who is disproportionately going to be helped? And it is indeed the very, very rich. Pass-through income is also going to be something that uh, is going to change. It's a complicated algorithm. I'm not even going to get into it, but it is going to be better for people who earn money through businesses that pass the income through to the individual. The David Pakman Show is an example, right? We're an S corporation. The corporation exists, the corporation earns money, 
But the corporation, other than a very small Massachusetts excise tax, doesn't pay taxes. The profit or loss passes through to the owners, of which I am one, and I pay taxes based on the money that is earned by the corporation. So this is actually going to help me in that sense. Uh, no changes to the 401k limit. We did a big expose on that last week. There is going to be a doubling of the exemption on the estate tax, and that is hugely, hugely regressive. Right now, the estate tax repeal is something that would only impact couples who have a net worth of over $11 million, right? So it only impacts those people. There's already an exemption on the estate tax for a couple for their first $11 million in assets. Now this will be doubled to $22 million in assets, and this is going to impact 0.2% of the population. We hear about, oh, this is good for the 1%. This is good for the 0.2%. It'll help Trump. Trump says it's not going to be good for him. Maybe he's right. It'll be fantastic for him. $600 million would be saved in passing Trump's money to his heirs with this. Trump's cabinet would benefit bigly from this. If you take the 15 richest members of Trump's administration, this estate tax change would save them about $1.7 billion. Forget about the 1%. This is for the 0.2%. And this is also bad for the environment. The tax plan, they figured out a way to make the tax plan hurt our planet. Right now, there's a federal $7,500 tax credit if you buy a plug-in electric car. Gone. Gone under this plan. Uh, and in addition to that, and I, I can't believe that we even are, are having this conversation, there's extremist religious language in this tax bill. If you look at page 93 of the plan, it says that you can designate unborn children as beneficiaries in 529 college savings plans. What is that? A 529 college savings plan is a plan that a parent or someone else can set up for a child. And you can set it up up until now as soon as they are born. This bill says even unborn children can be the beneficiaries of a 529 plan. Why is that relevant? It is a backdoor way of making a law that says life begins at conception. If you then say you don't even need a social security number to have a 529 plan that you are the beneficiary of, you can be an unborn child. That could be a backdoor way to crowbar in that life begins at conception because after conception, you can have a 529 plan. You couldn't have a 529 plan if you're not a person, right? So this plan is an unmitigated disaster. You might be wondering, well, you're talking, David, about all the people that will get a tax cut. How do you make up that lost revenue? And that is the exact question you should be asking. If so many people are getting cuts, mostly, of course, the very rich, the government either needs to cut spending which isn't happening or increase revenues. And the reality is that this tax plan is not going to increase revenues because if I, as I've told you before, and I will tell you again, when you cut the taxes on the very rich, they mostly save the money. It is not economically stimulative.
We actually saw 13 Republicans defect on this. Uh, it was a somewhat close vote in the House. Um, and that's because uh, they have big concerns about how deeply hurt the middle class constituents of theirs will be um, in districts in New York and New Jersey and California mm-hmm. because of the repeal of the state and local tax deduction. This hits middle class families really hard. And you even saw Republicans coming out to vote against it uh, in not insignificant numbers in the yeah, House. It's not, it's not a small thing that 13 Republicans Republicans actually voted against this bill, yep. especially recognizing that this isn't even going to be the version that, if, that eventually gets signed into law yep. if the Senate's able to pass it. Yep. So part of what I think is is important to um, also kind of uh, marinate on for a second is the process here, right? Um, uh, when it came to health care, people really were up in arms, and including people like John McCain, um, that it wasn't regular order that, that Congress was going through, that they yep. were really kind of in the, the um <clears throat> caricature of a smoke-filled back room, right, yes. writing the bill under under cover of night. And and many of the people who were actually in Congress voting on uh, health care repeal um, was, they didn't even know what was in the bill, right? And that was a repeated criticism. Um, the same thing is happening here. And actually, we've seen that play out just this week, literally yep. like... Like the night before uh, members of Congress were going to vote on this bill, they, yep. they changed a whole bunch of stuff. That's exactly right. So Republicans are moving really, really fast on this because they want this bill to see as little daylight as mm-hmm. possible because they know the more people get to take a look at it, the more they're going to hate it. It's already deeply unpopular, which is why they want to get it through lickety split. So we've been talking about the House bill, mm-hmm. which passed yesterday, but the Senate was busy moving on this too. The Senate Finance Committee um, was, was dealing with their version of the bill in committee. Um, And just like you said, Rebecca, we saw a number of different versions of the bill get considered in committee. Um, In fact, uh, the markup started Monday. On Tuesday, Tuesday night, we actually saw an entirely different version of the bill almost with major, major changes in it uh, in what we're calling the Tuesday Night Massacre. Uh, Hat tip, Seth Hanlon, that's right. Tuesday (laughs) Night Massacre. Tell your friends. It was. It was a Tuesday Night Massacre. Major changes to the bill that made it somehow even worse than it was already. It was always a bill uh, with secret health care cuts in it. Um, and the tax fight always had been the tax fight, but it became explicitly official on Tuesday night because Republicans added repeal of the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate yeah. to the tax bill. So what will that do? We know, uh, based on nonpartisan analysis from the Congressional Budget Office, uh, that it'll lead to 13 more, 13 million more people uninsured, yeah. and it'll jack premiums up an extra 10%. So why do Republicans want to do this? It's, it's two things. One, they have an insatiable appetite to repeal the Affordable Care Act at every opportunity that they can. They're not done trying. They've they've failed at every juncture so far because the American people have said no and put their foot down, their collective yep. feet down. But they're not done yet. They're trying to do it here. Yep. And they will not give up on this uh, until they're no longer in office. Uh, then the second thing, and this is perhaps even more the more despicable part, is that repealing the individual mandate actually helps them with their math. It buys them a, a, about an additional $300 billion. That's money that would uh, that right now is going out the door to help low-income people afford their health insurance. By repealing the mandate, Republicans are able to take that $300 billion and give it to corporations in faster and bigger tax cuts. It's literally reaching into people's pockets, taking their money, and then giving it to wealthy corporations. That's what repeal of the individual mandate does. 
HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers your favorite step-by-step -step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. With HelloFresh, all the ingredients are delivered right to your door in recyclable, insulated packaging and come pre-measured in handy labeled meal kits so you know exactly which ingredients go with which recipe. And HelloFresh offers a wide variety of chef-curated recipes that change weekly, including the classic plan, which comes with a wide variety of meat, fish, and seasonal produce, the veggie plan, vegetarian recipes obviously with plant-based proteins, and the family plan, quick and easy meals the whole family will love. But better yet, you can choose a delivery day that works best for you and your busy schedule. Feel confident when cooking HelloFresh with the simple recipes outlined on pictured step-by-step -step instruction cards, and look forward to your HelloFresh box delivery as the highlight of your week knowing dinner just got that much easier, and try things you never think to cook on your own. Frankly, that's my favorite part, is getting out of my comfort zone because it's so easy to fall into a rut cooking the same things over and over, but when HelloFresh arrives, I know I'm going to get to try something new, something I wouldn't necessarily have thought of to cook myself, but that I know will be excellent. So to give it a try, and for $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code BESTOFLEFT30. My name is Steve Taylor, and I am Senior Vice President and Counsel for Public Policy at United Way Worldwide. United Way is a great organization. Your Twitter bio says something very interesting. Quote, nine years of learning more about tax policy than I ever wanted to know, end quote. <laughs> How are you feeling these days, buddy? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it is. it has been interesting. Yeah. I worked on Capitol Hill for 10 years. But I never once did tax policy. And now now being off the hill working for a nonprofit and working ta on tax policy all the time is something I did not expect. So you've probably heard of the United Way. It is a charity. It has local branches all across America and, in fact, in every single congressional district. It supports programs to limit things like teen pregnancy, fight domestic violence, all sorts of worthy causes. And they benefit from the charitable deduction. So a change to the standard deduction? That could really be a problem for them. So um, every year, Americans give billions of dollars to charity. Uh, in fact, in 2016, Americans gave $282 billion to charities. But ever since the income tax was created 100 years ago, lawmakers in Washington believed that people should not be taxed on donations that they're making to charity. And so early on, they created the charitable deduction. Under the proposal that has been circulated, instead of 33% of taxpayers itemizing, only about 5% of taxpayers will itemize. The charitable deduction is only available to people who itemize. So what that means is a huge chunk of people who currently have access to the charitable deduction will lose the charitable deduction. We actually know the number. 28 million people who currently take the charitable deduction will become non-itemizers and no longer have access to the charitable deduction. That would especially devastate charities 
that rely on donations from those middle class taxpayers. So if they change the way you do the the itemization or they change the way you fundamentally file your tax returns, is that going to affect charitable giving, i.e. the United Way getting money from Americans? This is exactly what United Way is concerned about. In the draft proposals on tax reform, the lawmakers have said a number of times that they're going to preserve the charitable deduction. Uh, We are keeping the charitable deduction on the postcard. More than that, we are working with charitable organizations to explore ways to unlock more charitable giving. So the idea that the the charitable deduction was something that couldn't be touched, um, they sort of paid lip service to that by saying we're going to preserve the charitable deduction. But they won't tell you is that the vast majority of people who currently itemize their taxes and therefore have access to the charitable deduction, those folks, most of those folks will no longer itemize their taxes. Mm-hmm. So, um, so even though technically the charitable deduction still exists, a tiny group of taxpayers will still have access to it. I mean, would that cripple the United Way in, in the work that you do? Well, the people – the people who currently itemize their taxes and take the charitable deduction and who would lose that deduction, those are the heart and soul of United Way's donors. And I have to assume that for the entire not-for-profit sector out there that do charitable work, it would devastate them as well. Absolutely. And this really goes to the charities that provide basic needs – social services, and disaster relief. Those charities rely very heavily on middle-class donors. Now, some of these kind of elite upper-income donors and taxpayers who will still itemize, it's projected to be about 5% of taxpayers will still itemize. I don't want to diminish their charitable contributions. So, those folks are making really substantial charitable gifts. They tend to be more towards their university or hospitals, a different kinds of charitable giving. The working class, the middle class folks who are out there just working in day-to-day jobs, uh, in United Way's case, they're giving small donations every couple of weeks out of their paycheck. Those are middle class folks many of whom are just out in middle America. They are they, they may own a modest house and they're just kind of getting by and they're giving a few hundred dollars every year to their favorite charity. Those are the folks who are going to lose a charitable deduction under this tax proposal. So then my question is this. If United Way stands to lose so much and it sounds like they would, what are you going to do about it? What have you been doing about it? Oh, my gosh. We... um. So I'm here at United Way's headquarters, and we're in Washington, D.C. area, and we have been up on Capitol Hill just sort of nonstop for months trying to get this message across to lawmakers. Uh, What I think has really been impactful has been our local United Ways who are out. We have 1,150 local United Ways spread out all across the country. There's a United Way in every single congressional district. 
And those United Ways, their staff, their stakeholders, their board members who are often community leaders have been reaching out to their members of Congress, calling attention to the challenge that's going to be created and and asking for help and, and asking Congress for relief. Have you got any pushback from members of Congress considering that there is a local United Way affiliate in every single congressional district? Well, I'm sorry to say that it doesn't look like we have made any real progress on these efforts. Um, You know, when we go into congressional offices and it's both Democrats and Republicans, uh, they're they're very supportive of charities. Uh, They talk about, you know, how they support charities and how uh, how they want to help us. A lot of them have personal stories about the charity that they have been involved in. But then when we get down to the nitty gritty about the challenges that this tax bill is going to create for us, we just have not really had any relief. If you're a proponent of tax reform, I mean, I would I would assume that you're going to say, look, people are still going to give. It's not like their consciences tell them to stop giving. You and I both worked on Capitol Hill. You've been on both sides of arguments before. How, what would you say to a member? If I'm a member and I just said that to you, how would you respond to that? Well, what I'd say is you are correct. People will still give, but people will give less. There has been because the charitable deduction has been around for so long, it has been studied for decades. Um, Academics and economists have studied the impact of tax incentives on charitable giving. And the, the evidence is really overwhelming. It's not some evidence. It's not most evidence. It is all empirical evidence proves that charitable giving is incentivized by tax policy. And so the data just shows it. And then on top of that, every charity that goes up to Capitol Hill can give anecdotal evidence of that. You know, huge, huge dollars are donated on December 31st every year. Mm -hmm. And the only rational explanation for that is that people are trying to get their gifts in under the wire so that they can claim the charitable deduction. Now, Nomi, you yourself at a different point in your life were a managing director at Goldman Sachs. You also were at Bear Stearns. Part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you because for all of Donald Trump's attacks on Hillary Clinton during the campaign and the speeches that she gave at Goldman Sachs, Trump has had more Goldman Sachs alums in his administration at this point than any other president in history in terms of just the number this early on in his time in office. And you have a a piece this week about the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin. And one of the things that Mnuchin has been doing for the administration is sort of threatening the public with financial disaster if 
a tax reform plan is not pushed through. And he's done this on national television. He's also done it in at various summits where he's saying, look, I think to the extent we get the tax deal done, the stock market will go up higher. But there's no question in my mind, if we don't get it done, you're going to see a reversal of a significant amount of these gains. What is your analysis of what is happening right now on Wall Street under Donald Trump, where Trump himself says, you know, every single day we break a, you know, break a new record, 65 records since I became president on the Dow alone. I think that there's a couple ways to to consider what Mnuchin is doing. On on the one hand, it's completely out of the playbook of a former Goldman Sachs alum who was a CEO um, and chairman of Goldman Sachs before he became Treasury Secretary for George Bush. And that was during the time of the financial crisis where he sort of got down on one knee in front of Nancy Pelosi, who was Speaker of the House, and said, if you guys don't pass, I Congress, this um, bailout bill for the banks, all the ATMs are going to cease to give money to people and there's going to be Armageddon and so forth. We must do so in order to avoid a continuing series of financial institution failures and frozen credit markets that threaten American families' financial well-being, the viability of businesses both small and large, and the very health of our economy. And so that was a way of of basically you know, tying Congress or at least you know, threatening. You're referring, of course, to the former Goldman Sachs CEO, Hank Paulson. That's correct, um, who was also the former Treasury Secretary. And of course, Steve Mnuchin, who was only a former partner at Goldman Sachs and not the CEO, but 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 still pretty high. Um, actually, he left when I left, so he's done a lot of other things since then. But the point is that the the way in which both Hank Paulson back at the times of the bailouts in the beginning of the crisis and Steve Mnuchin, who's kind of using the same tactic to threaten the sort of health and level of the stock market if these tax cuts for corporations, which is mostly what he's talking about when he makes that threat, don't go through. It's really the same thing. It's really this instilling fear in, in Congress and, and perhaps the greater public to sort of be quiet about it with respect to Congress that if if certain things aren't done to effectively help companies in the beginning of the crisis, it was to specifically help the banking industry from getting out of their own um, the messes that they had created, many, many of which much of which was created illegally. Um, and now with respect to corporations, what Steven Nuchin was talking about and is talking about and is stumping about is a 42 percent tax slash in the actual substantive rate of taxation for corporations. And, and I mean, that, that is a substantial going from 35% to 20%, which is in the GOP bill. And his reasoning for that and, and for connecting it to the stock market and, and why Trump connects everything to the stock market um, is because it is the one thing that you can objectively look at that has a number that has gone up. You can't do that with wages. You can't do that with job quality. You can't do that with job longevity. You can't do that with your know, health coverage. You can't do that with lots of other things that most people count on um, for their day-to-day lives and to make the day-to-day payments and money that they need to survive them. But what the stock market shows is is not not the expectation that there was going to be a tax cut. What the what the stock, which is what he's saying, what the stock market shows is that for all of this period, and it happened during Obama as well, and yes, it's continued under Trump, there's been a situation where companies have been able to receive very cheap money because our rates are close to zero and they have been since the financial crisis in order to subsidize the money that was lacking at the time for the banking system. That money has gone to banks. 
Banks have bought back their own shares. Banks pay themselves dividends on their own shares that they bought. That pumps the stock market up. That's a significant set of buyers for their own stock. The same thing in companies um, throughout all of the different industry spectrums. They they get the ability to um, issue cheap debt or basically to borrow money cheaply because rates are so low. They use that money not necessarily to expand. Some of it they hide, as we were talking about earlier. Um, some of it they use to buy back their own stock, which enriches the top level of those firms, and it also pushes the stock market up. And then they also get dividends on their own stock. So all of that um, is more why the stock market has continued to rise throughout Obama's administration, as well as um, with Trump in there now, because nothing has been done to effectively change that. Mnuchin and Trump have added on to that and sort of taken credit for it by saying, well, because of us, because of these plans, because of expectations on these plans, things are going up. No, banks don't buy stock on expectations of plans. They buy stock because they have the money to do it and they're not, they don't have to do anything else with it. Like, let's say reserve it in case we have another emergency crisis and they, you know, need to go back to the government for, for additional subsidies. That's not what they're doing. They're also, because of Mnuchin and, and Trump, which he doesn't talk about in the scare tactics, um, looking forward to more deregulation in terms of the rules um, under which they provide their services. Um, so rather than doing what Trump promised he would do, he promised a lot of things that he's not doing. But one of the things he promised to do um, was to actually break up banks, to bring back Glass-Steagall, um, the real one from 1933, not some pseudo weird one that Mnuchin talks about that would actually require banks to to split up, to, to use their deposits and their loans for real banking services, to bet when they need to on the side and not to have the subsidies from the Federal Reserve or the government. That's not what's happening. So if anything, if there's any modicum of rising that can be attributed to policies that that this administration is pushing and to which Mnuchin in particular is pressing, it's it's the level of deregulation. It's not necessarily a taxation expectation because that that really hasn't baked in, been baked in, where certain deregulation movements have already been baked in. Have you ever tried a Kind bar? Kind makes delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients you can recognize and pronounce. If you're ready to try some tasty and healthy snacks, we've got a special deal for you. You can try 10 different full-sized Kind bars for free. You just pay shipping. When you sign up for the sample box, you'll also get to try Kind's Snack Club, where you'll receive monthly snacks at a discount and get members-only bonuses. This free sample box has a wide variety of full-sized Kind snacks, including their fruit, nut, and chocolate bars, pressed fruit bars, and even a sweet and spicy bar for you to try. And my first introduction to Kind Bars was during a guided multi-day hike through Glacier National Park, and those professional guides knew exactly what kind of food to provide for the group to fuel us through mile after mile after mile hiking every day, and Kind Bars were a major part of my diet on that trip. So trust me, if Kind Bars are good enough to power my fellow hikers and me through 45 miles of hiking in four days, then they're good enough to power you through your afternoon crash at work. To try 10 different Kind Bars for free, go to kindsnacks.com best. You shouldn't have to choose between your health and taste when it comes to snacking. That's why both award-winning chefs and nutritionists love and recommend Kind Bars. Visit kindsnacks.com best to get your free sample box.
Okay, Desi Doyen, Republicans have for years, decades, I think, been trying to do this, trying to drill in the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge. It looks like this time it may actually happen. Yes, it actually does look like that. On Wednesday, the majority Republicans in the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee pushed through a provision to open up some of the pristine Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil and gas exploration, despite opposition from the vast majority of Americans by attaching it to their tax cut bill, claiming that the small amount of revenue from drilling will offset their $1.5 trillion tax cut. In a testy hearing, Democratic Senator Maria Cantwell of Washington State noted that the oil industry already has millions of untouched acres right next door in the Alaska National Petroleum Reserve. And she excoriated Alaska Republicans and the Trump administration Interior Department for claiming that wilderness and oil development can coexist. I'm just amazed that people want to throw away such an unbelievable ecological jewel of our planet. I don't even just mean our nation, I mean our planet. We think that it's a critical habitat that should be protected and that it is not consistent with oil and gas development. And that position was echoed by the Audubon Society, which called the refuge crucial for endangered species, saying, quote, there is no such thing as a wilderness oil field. You've either got wilderness or you've got an oil field. Mm. They and other conservation groups are calling on Americans to call their congressional representatives to stop the land grab of America's last intact wilderness. These Republicans will run for cover if the people run after them. And there's got to be a rumble rumble from the people because this tax reform is so full of gobbledygook that gobbledygook means that you can't talk plain English to the American people so they can get upset and start summoning their two senators and representatives. Good heavens, there are tens of millions of people who would be outraged. There's only 535 members of Congress. Get going, listeners. Yeah, show them the rumble from the people. Show uh, you're going to remember in November next year. It doesn't take that many. You know, Jim, we've talked about this. If a couple million people decide they're going to cut down a little bit on their sports watching and watch Congress on this tax bill, the heat that will come in will be uh, really effective. Uh, but the Republicans well, we want, to push, it. They want to push it through by Thanksgiving. Can you imagine what a Thanksgiving this is for the super rich and the corporate rich? Yeah, this is pretty outrageous, I think. We saw, though, in 2011, there was a mobilization called U.S. Uncut, and it was back in the Occupy days. For about a year or so, there was an enormous mobilization of Americans, ordinary people across the country who got excited about these tax issues. And a lot of organizations worked with them to educate people. They were in the streets. They were doing exactly what you talked about. That you know, something uh, something got dropped in the last six years. And I think it was basically the crowd in the Democratic Party who were closer to Wall Street. They didn't really want to talk about uh, progressive taxation. You know, they didn't think it would be popular with, you know, their funders. They ended up getting, uh, you know, trumped. 
And the thing right now, I think, is to find the core values of the American people to remind them that the middle class is the strength of our country, that small business is not going to benefit from these giveaways to wealthy companies and Wall Street, that the offshore provisions in this is a tax relief bill for tax havens and the law firms that represent them, the accounting firms are going to be profiting. There was just a Pricewaterhouse conference on this bill yesterday behind closed doors. I heard all about it because I have a friend who went there and he said, these people have already figured out how to game this new Trump plan. So they will make it even more full of loopholes than the tax system already is. Anything that the Republicans are proposing to fix the system is going to be sabotaged. And, you know, they're sort of chuckling among themselves at what a gigantic giveaway this will be with their clients sitting there in the room, slapping each other on the back. I mean, if Americans knew what's going on behind closed doors in the corporate planning vehicles in Wall Street and accounting firms and in the lobbying groups in Washington, this is the problem we face. Uh, We just need to get informed and that'll make us angry. Here's a way to look at it. If you say to the corporations, why do you want these tax cuts? They say, well, we want more capital so we can invest in productive equipment and create jobs. And then you say to them, really? Well, first of all, you didn't do that when you brought back those hundreds of billions of dollars in 2004 where you parked overseas in tax savings. You bought your own stock. You didn't create new jobs. You bought your own stock in order to increase the boss's pay, which is pegged to that. Now, we've seen this movie or yeah, it was so called why why aren't, why aren't more people making this argument jim if corporations want these tax cuts cuz they want more capital they're drowning in capital and if they want more capital why are they burning 3.3 trillion dollars of stock buybacks their own stock buybacks over the last 12 years which could have been put to productive investment raising worker wages shoring up worker pensions which are depleted or engaging in research and development and jobs. And so the rebuttal to the Republicans is, why are you giving them more money to burn on stock buybacks? Stock buybacks is the big story in my book. Well, I think, you know, we tried this movie before in 2004, 2005, when George Bush enacted a, a giveaway you know, it was at that point, it was supposed to be a one-time 5.25% tax rate for companies that brought back offshore profits. We watched and saw how that turned out. They did shareholder buybacks. They didn't invest in jobs. They didn't create any jobs. They laid off people from 2004 to 2008. The economy then slipped into a terrible the Great great Recession. So, you know, if you give these people unconstrained decision-making power to do whatever they want with the money they repatriate at a 5% tax rate, you just allow them to open the door to self-service. The abusive shareholder buybacks, total waste of money from, you know, any finance professor at the Harvard Business School will tell you there is no worse indication of a company's lack of ideas than engaging in shareholder buybacks. You know, it's tragedy to me to see a a great company like Apple basically turning more and more to tax chicanery when it was, you know, found on the base of great products, great innovation, you know, to the extent that companies like Pfizer are basically engaged in offshoring and, you know, sort of clever chicanery as a substitute for great drugs. You know, this is uh, the problem. 
Yeah, and let me interrupt, please. Jim Henry, our listeners, some of our listeners may want to know a little bit more about stock buybacks. The basic compensation plan for these big bosses, these CEOs, has criteria that says if the earnings per share goes up, their pay goes up. So when they buy back their own stock with the shareholders' money, it's not even their money, and they don't ask the shareholders, by the way, and they don't give it by way of dividends. They want to use $3.3 trillion to buy back the stock. They are improving the earnings per share ratio. But it doesn't create one job. It doesn't help one community. It just parks a huge amount of money more in the top bosses who develop actually a conflict of interest with their own companies. It's not good for the company. It's not good for workers. It's not good for the shareholders. They're not getting the dividends they should get. And when Walmart spends $55 billion on stock buybacks and then says they can't pay their workers 12 or 15 bucks an hour, you see the contrast there. When do you think this greed is going to reach a level, this corporate greed, this plutocrat greed, that it's going to snap the apathy of the vast majority of the American people who've given up on themselves and turned themselves into citizen serfs while these corporations and their political buddies in Washington drive our country into the ground and abandoned it for fascists and communist regimes overseas with Donald Trump's okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the study, the studies that have been done, and I, you know, when I was chief economist at McKinsey and Company, we did studies of things like shareholder buybacks and their impact on shareholders. And what we found is that those companies that engaged in them actually had far worse performance long term than, you know, the companies that were reinvesting in real assets and real jobs and innovation. You know, and so it's sort of a bellwether. If you see a company investing in shareholder buybacks, you know, sell the stock because they're out of ideas. No, I think more generally, the problem we face is a lot of Americans have basically kind of given up on both parties and they don't see the kind of hard hitting energy, high energy criticism of these ridiculous plans coming from the Democratic Party at the moment. So, you know, we have a sort of gerontocracy in the Democratic Party. We have people with relatively low energy level. And there's not a high, there's not a, as you say, uh, at the top of this broadcast, there isn't a positive plan for tax justice presented by the progressive party that there needs to be. So most Americans kind of give up because these are not issues. They have enough to worry about. They're trying to make a living. They like to look to organized political groups that are going to represent them and and take care of these issues. But they're being very ineffectively represented right now. Today, I'd like to take a few minutes to talk about two issues that are interlocked. Uh, One is the recently released Paradise Papers, uh, which talk about how billionaires are able to avoid paying their fair share of taxes. And secondly, uh, is the disastrous Republican tax plan. So let me start off by telling you what you already know, is that we live in a country today 
which has massive levels of income and wealth inequality, worse today than at any time since the late 1920s. We have a situation where the top one-tenth of one percent now owns almost as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent. Incredibly, and this is really quite hard to believe, the three wealthiest people in this country, three people, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Buffett, own more wealth than the bottom half of American society, 160 million Americans. Meanwhile, while the people on top have such incredible wealth, 40 million Americans are living in poverty. The middle class has been shrinking for 40 years, and 28 million Americans have no health insurance at all. But it is not only the reality of the grotesque level of income and wealth inequality that makes the American people so angry. It is the reality that the people on top, with their incredible wealth and power and access to lawyers and accountants, are able to manipulate the system to benefit themselves at the expense of everyone else. And that, after all, is what the rigged economy is all about. The major issue of our time, in my view, and there are a lot of major issues out there, believe me, but the issue that I worry about so much is the rapid movement toward international oligarchy, in which a handful of billionaires own and control a significant part of the global economy. We're not just talking about the United States of America. We're talking about the entire global economy. A group of investigative journalists released over 13 million files known as the Paradise Papers, exposing just how bad this situation has become. These papers show how a handful of oligarchs in the United States and throughout the world get richer, much richer, by hiding their wealth and profits offshore to avoid paying their fair share of taxes. You know, it's a funny thing. All of these American billionaires, they love the military and they love the veterans and they love schools and they love infrastructure, but they don't want to pay anything to maintain those people and maintain those institutions. They want you to pay. So they love the military, but it's your job to pay taxes to support the military, not them. The list of individuals involved in the Paradise Papers include billionaires like the Koch brothers, uh, Sheldon Adelson, Carl Icahn, and Robert Mercer. And these are guys, by the way, while they're busy shielding their money from taxation, apparently have many, many hundreds of millions of dollars to spend on campaigns to elect right-wing extremists who will protect the wealthy and the powerful. They can't pay taxes, but they do have a lot of money to spend in politics. It also includes such large financial institutions such as Wells Fargo, uh, Citigroup, and Bank of America. It includes, in the Paradise Papers, uh, corporations like Apple, Nike, and ExxonMobil. And Shock of all shocks, and I know you're really going to be shocked to hear this, it includes members of the Trump administration like Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, Chief Economic Advisor Gary Cohn, and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Let's be clear. Offshore tax evasion 
is a major problem not just for the United States, but for governments throughout the world. In 2012, the Tax Justice Network uh, released a statement and a report that is absolutely incredible. And in that report, they estimated that at least $21 trillion, let me repeat it, not $21 million, not $21 billion, $21 trillion is being stashed in offshore tax havens all over the world. The situation has become so absurd, so absurd, that one five-story office building in the Cayman Islands is now the home of nearly 20,000 corporations. Can you believe that they have 20,000 corporations right in that building, five-story building? And of course, they don't have 20,000 corporations in that building. It's all a fraud. And what it's about is these corporations, 20,000 of them, are using the address, that address in the Cayman Islands, in order to avoid taxes. That's all it is. In the United States, offshore tax evasion cost our government about $160 billion in lost revenue each and every year. $160 billion. That's money that could go to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure, roads, bridges, water systems, and create some 15 million good-paying jobs. That's money that in a competitive global economy can be used to make public colleges and universities tuition-free. That's money that could be used to provide high-quality universal pre-K and child care to every infant, toddler, and young child in our country. Now, I find it funny, uh, certainly not surprising, that instead of trying to crack down on offshore tax schemes, Trump and the Republicans in Congress are working overtime to pass legislation that would make this very bad situation even worse. And now we're talking about the Republican tax bill uh, in the House and one's coming up here soon in the Senate. At a time when corporations are making record-breaking profits, my Republican colleagues want to slash taxes for companies that are shifting American jobs to China and American profits to the Cayman Islands. Incredibly, the territorial tax system they are proposing would exempt the offshore profits of American corporations from U.S. taxes and allow for a one-time 12% tax on their offshore profits when brought back into the United States. In addition, at a time when one out of every five large profitable corporations in our country paid no federal income taxes at all. These guys want to lower the corporate tax rate from 35% down to 20%. In addition, at a time of massive wealth and income inequality, Trump and the Republicans in Congress want to cut taxes for billionaires big time by repealing the estate tax on families who inherit over 5.5 million dollars. And this is so unbelievable that it really is is hard to explain. Massive income and wealth inequality, richer getting richer, and what Trump and his friends want to do is repeal the estate tax, which would mean up to a $50 billion tax break for the Walton family, wealthiest family in America, over $30 billion tax breaks for the Koch brothers' family. How insane 
is that? What kind of priorities, what kind of morality is involved in that decision-making? Meanwhile, while the wealthy and large corporations are receiving incredibly large tax breaks, nearly half, listen to this, nearly half of middle-class families would actually see their taxes go up by the end of the decade. Got that? By the end of the decade, about half, almost half of middle-class families would see their taxes go up. And the reason for that is the elimination of deductions for medical expenses, the elimination of deductions for adoption, student loan interest rates, state and local income and sales taxes, and the cost of health insurance for the self-employed. And if they are able to pass this legislation, it would blow a giant hole in the deficit. Now, you all remember, year after year, my Republican colleagues talk about the deficit, how terrible it is, how horrible it is that we have a $20 trillion national debt. Well, this legislation would blow a giant hole in the deficit, increasing it, increasing the national debt by about $1.8 trillion over a 10-year period. And what does that mean? What the Republicans will do the day after this thing is passed, and we're going to do everything we can to prevent it from being passed, is they would say, well, the deficit is going up. We have to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And that's exactly what they proposed in their budget. Massive cuts to Medicaid, Medicaid, trillion dollars, Medicare, almost $500 billion, and they will get to Social Security sooner than later. Now, it seems to me that instead of providing even more tax breaks to profitable corporations and billionaires in Trump's cabinet, people who avoid billions in U.S. taxes, we need to close offshore tax loopholes and demand a fair and progressive tax system. And here's where you can become involved. Together, we stood up and we fought back successfully in opposition to this disastrous health care proposals that the Republicans brought up a few months ago. You know, they wanted to throw 16 million people off of health care, or 20 million people, or 32 million, depending on the proposal. But the American people stood up at rallies, at town meetings, on social media, and they fought back. Well, we have to do that right now in terms of this disastrous tax package that the Republicans are working on. They hope to get this thing done very quickly before the American people understand what's in it. But our job is to defeat them. And our job is now to get the word out in every and any way that we can to tell members of the House, tell members of the Senate that now is not the time to be giving massive tax breaks to the very richest people in this country. Now is not the time to be raising taxes on middle-class families. And now is not the time to be increasing the deficit so that Republicans can go forward and cut Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. So we need to come together on this issue. Uh, please do everything you can to work with us. Let's, de let's defeat this very, very dangerous piece of legislation. We've just heard clips today, starting with David Pakman giving his analysis of the tax plan, which he called an extremist, ideological, deficit-exploding, swamp-filling disaster wrapped in populist, good-for-the-average-family-dude language. 
Off-Kilter explained how this tax plan is yet another attempt to sabotage Obamacare. Decode DC dived into the underreported effect on charitable giving that would happen if the standard deduction were raised. Intercepted looked at some of the scare tactics being used to push this plan forward. The Green News report let us know about how the GOP is trying to shoehorn their long-held ambition to destroy pristine wilderness in Alaska into this tax bill. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour laid out how the lack of a strong progressive vision for tax justice has opened the door for the kind of pseudo-populist, oligarch-friendly economics we're seeing now. And finally, we just heard Bernie Sanders explain the connection between the rise of an international oligarchy as demonstrated by the Paradise Papers and the current proposed tax plan and the urgent need to stop them both. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Anthony from Illinois. I'm calling in to put together kind of a brief response to some of Erica's comments on Donna Brazil and your just kind of brief responses. I think that the kind of whole aftermath of Donna Brazil, I think, rightly points out some of the flaws of party structures in general. But one of the things that I wonder that I think people aren't kind of taking seriously is something you alluded to and talked about, which is this idea of voting based on what letter or party affiliation someone has. I think it would be a good idea perhaps to kind of put together an episode if you can or cite an episode kind of discussing some of these issues relating to Donna Brazil. I think there's been a good amount of some type of racist backlash that I've seen against her from kind of more mainstream, quote-unquote, left commentators that I've seen online in kind of my own unique context. But I think for me, the biggest kind of issue of the party sphere that I see is this idea that I can only vote for a Democrat if I'm a leftist, or I can only vote for, you know, a Republican if I am not a Democrat. And I think it's very problematic to have that kind of a view. I've seen a few people in my timeline and talked to quite a few people who kind of have this view of, well, if you didn't vote for Hillary Clinton, you don't have a right to complain about the state of the world or something similar to that effect. So, you know, I think it's just one of those difficult things where people don't seem to be willing to kind of learn more about party affiliations, party structure. But I also think doing kind of the difficult work of examining where your own beliefs can kind of fall into a party system and whether or not there needs to be viable party options. Um, Obviously, it's going to take time to build viable third parties. So I think there should be, you know, cooperation in some capacities between, you know, organizations like the Democratic Socialists of America and other, you know, grassroots, kind of more leftist than kind of classic mainstream liberal thought. But at the same time, I think there also needs to be that discussion on the grassroots of what do we want a party to represent as kind of a globe, as a, you know, a national base versus kind of that geographical or, you know, local race. I think some of that's been happening with the elections that happened recently in Virginia and New York, where I see a lot of you know people who proudly identify as neoliberal Democrats 
saying, well, look at all these Democrats that won. Who thinks that centrism is dead? You know, this could have been a chance to win more. But I think that there is something to be said about trying to look at parties from a grassroots level and building the base up versus kind of that corporate top-down structure that it seems, at least in my own context, that a lot of liberals seem to like more than doing that grassroots work. Keep up the great work. Have a good one. Hey, Jay, it's Jack from Atlanta again, responding back to your comments through what I said about guns. Um, I apologize. I didn't mean to say or to infer that I, you know, I thought that all guns would be banned. I don't. I think really my point was that, like banning drugs, even just regulating guns is not going to stop the problem with guns in America because it's sort of a, a problem that stems from many different aspects of society. So that's all I meant. Of course, I do think we should look at banning maybe the particular guns that are used in the mass shootings and, and obviously having better background checks. But again, my point is that that alone is not going to do anything to solve the endemic of gun violence in America because the cultural problem has to do with America being a racist, violent, imperialist, warmongering country. Uh, secondly, I wanted to add a point to your discussion about the Democrats and, and Martin O'Malley and stuff. I think, and you kind of you know implied this, the thing that really gets my goat is people are like, well, he's not a Democrat, but what does that even mean? What do the Democrats even stand for? Because, you know, evidently he was still very, he was popular enough to, to run as a Democrat and had the party not sort of kneecapped his chances, he might have won. So, um, you know, again, what, is, what does being a Democrat mean as a Democratic voter? I don't have any say in the party platform, neither do you. And that's something that was a, episode of, uh, I think it's This Is Hell, with, um, I can't remember his last name, but Seth somebody wrote a piece for Jacobin, maybe like a year ago or so, or six months ago, talking about in how you can, you know, as a Labour Party member, you can vote for policy, i.e. you are an invested member of the party. And that is why the whole argument that Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat is complete BS. So, uh, anyway, that's all I had to say. Thanks very much, uh, as always. Thanks, bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And now, as promised at the beginning of the show, I have a big announcement for you. Now, longtime listeners may have heard me talk about Climate Ride in the past. Uh, every year or so, I do one of these climate rides, uh, but if you haven't heard of it, here's here's the basic idea. I go out with a group, Climate Rides an organization, they get a group of people together to do multi-day bike rides and hikes. And the whole purpose is to raise awareness and support and money for sustainability, active transportation, environmental causes, climate change, all of that. So what I do is raise money for this event and then go out and do a big ride as as my sort of contribution to that. I, I promise to ride hundreds of miles or hike dozens of miles, uh, that sort of thing. And in, in return, I try to raise a bunch of money for good causes. 
So if you've been listening for a while, you've heard me do this before, you know that I've done New York to D.C. a couple of times on a bike. Uh, Amanda and I hiked uh, dozens of miles through Glacier National Park a few years ago. And then last year, my brother and I rode from Maine down to Boston. Um, But this year is substantively different. This year, I jumped at the opportunity to go on their climate ride, Bhutan ride, as in the Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan, the country that invented gross national happiness. And again, some of you may know that a couple of years ago, I started studying happiness. And uh, so, so Bhutan comes up in that conversation a, a fair amount. And so I've been fascinated with country, would uh, love to know more about it. And so obviously jumped at this opportunity. It's this sort of one-time event that they're putting on. And so I signed up as soon as I saw it. If you don't know much about Bhutan, that they're, they're sort of just over the past couple of decades have been coming into the modern world. And they wanted to do it very thoughtfully and carefully and not overexploit themselves. And so they, they sort of took a look at what was going wrong with a lot of countries around the world and societies and how they were breaking down and not making people as happy as they could be, even though they had all of the modern amenities. And so instead of focusing on gross domestic product, as so many countries do, Bhutan decided to focus on gross national happiness as the actual measure by which they developed the country. And that includes protections for the environment, cultural preservation, good governance, and so on. And they take the environment piece really seriously. Three quarters of the country is still forested and 25% of the country is designated as national parks. And uh, they've banned exporting logs and cycling is encouraged by taxing private vehicles. And they've also pledged to be carbon neutral. As part of all of this, tourism in Bhutan is tightly controlled. Uh, That helps ensure that they don't exploit the country too much or the people who live there. And so Climate Ride offering this event is a really incredible opportunity and obviously it raises money for a good cause as well and it lets me go and learn about this country and the culture and everything uh, having to do with it so I'm pretty excited about it. I hope, hope, uh, hope you can tell. But last year we had this really good idea when, when I did a climate ride fundraiser last year we thought we sort of need to do a fundraiser for the show too like it's pretty much always a good time to be doing a membership drive around here. People, for all kinds of reasons, end up having to cancel their memberships. The show depends enormously on memberships. And so uh, what we did last year was just combine these two things. And uh, we're going to do the same thing again this year. So uh, what we're calling our winter fundraiser is uh, we're trying to raise $5,000 for Climate Ride. That's just a one-time thing. And As part of that, we want to sort of couple with it a membership drive. So obviously we don't need like some large static number of dollars for the membership drive. We just need more monthly paying members. So how this works is we've come up with a few incentives to get you to donate to both. Uh, If you donate $25 to the climate ride or more and become a member at the same time, then you get the option to get these really, really nice best of the left t-shirts or hoodies. And we don't make these available at any time except during these fundraisers. And, you know, the last one of these that we did was like 15 or 16 months ago. So 
you never really know when the next one's going to come up. And th these are really great pieces of apparel. I, I can vouch for that myself. They're made of recycled materials. Actually, plastic bottles, if you can believe it, are incorporated into the fabric, and they're incredibly soft, really, really nice. And one listener actually just got in touch recently, spontaneously asking, hey, when are you going to make those available again? Because my girlfriend keeps wearing mine. I need to get her her own so I can get mine back. So it goes to show that these are high-value items. You're going to want to grab one while you have the chance. All of the details are on the website. You can find, uh, you know, every question you have will be answered on our campaign page on the website. You can't possibly miss it. Uh, but if you are already a member, you won't be left out. You can uh, just make a donation to the Climate Ride, and you'll have the opportunity to buy a t-shirt or hoodie at cost. I would love to be able to give everyone a free hoodie or sweatshirt, uh, but, but obviously the finances of that don't work out at all. So I, I'm sure you can understand, but new members get incentivized because you actually get a free t-shirt or hoodie depending on the size of your membership level and what you decide to pick as your apparel uh, gift. We raise a bunch of money to fight climate change and we put the show on better financial footing. So the, Honestly, there has never been a better time to become a member. I, I feel like this is the sort of thing that gets said a lot about a lot of things, and maybe it's true other times, but it's definitely actually true right now. So, for instance, we are putting out more and better bonus content than we have ever put out before. Uh, we have a better system to manage your payments and all the bonus content, how you access all of that than ever before now that we're using Patreon. You can use PayPal or a regular credit card. Uh, that's been a big issue of contention over the last, you know, many, many years that uh, we were restricted to PayPal before and people didn't necessarily appreciate that. And frankly, the show is in one of its greatest moments of need for support right now, as, as I've been mentioning for the last few uh, weeks, maybe a couple of months now, ads for reasons we don't understand, are drying up a bit. Uh, I know this is ironic to say uh, on a day when we actually had some ads on the show, uh, good for us, but that was, that was like the exception that proves the rule. And so we definitely have an eye on trying to shore up the finances of the show and thought this was a great opportunity to do that. So as I said, all the details are on the website, but uh, the basics are really easy. Donate to Climate Ride, $25 or more, become a member and get all the great stuff that comes with that anyways, and you get a free piece of apparel. Everyone wins. And I know we're getting towards the end of the year, so be aware that Climate Ride is a nonprofit organization, so all donations to Climate Ride are tax deductible. Best of Left is not a nonprofit organization, so donations to us are not tax deductible. Just be aware. So to get started, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft, or you can click through to the campaign page at bestofleft.com. There's a big banner at the top. You can't miss it. So keep the comments coming in, as always. The number to dial, 202-999-3991. And that is going to be it for today. Thanks, of course, to everyone for listening. And thanks, as always, to all of those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on Patreon.com. That is absolutely how the program survives, more now than ever. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of 
the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. See past our own sad stories and